We try to just meet our clients wherever they are. So some will come to us with a very clear image of exactly what they want, and then others will come to us with a completely blank slate. Welcome back to the Slice Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Gallagher, and this week I'm joined by Jody and Eileen, mother-daughter duo and founder and operators of Ground Plans. Ground Plans is a custom rug manufacturing and design company. Hello. How are you guys doing today? Hi. Very well. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. I'm excited to get to know the story behind Ground Plans. Thanks for having us on. So, Jody, you are the original founder of this business. Is that correct? Yes. So, how did you get into rug design and rug making? I have a fine arts background. And then I segued into studying a traditional Japanese textile craft in Japan for about three years. And that brought me to more of a textiles and material kind of sculptural way of looking at art. So my first collection um, had to do with sculpting carpets on the ground but also it being conceptual in in approach where I used images that related to the ground level or the floor, such as ballroom dancing steps, diagram, math, rocks, shaped rocks that I had taken a photograph of at Issei, which is a Japanese temple, sacred temple. And so a map, I mean, it just kind of went from there. So you lived in Japan for three years? Yes. And I studied under a national living trip, what's called a national living treasure. So he had started this whole folk craft movement in Japan called Minge, which I don't know how, how much that term is used in the States. Probably not much. And after you got back, you decided I'm going to start my own company or were you just creating these rugs and people were interested or how did it become a fully formed company? I moved back to New York and then San Francisco and I started doing fashion design and I loved it. But I think the one thing about fashion is that it moves very quickly. You have to come out up with a creation every then at that time, every season. But I, I was in viewing my fashion with a kind of sense of Japanese aesthetics, which became very big at the time with Yoji Yamamoto, Comme des Garçons. So I had that that input or that feedback that I could kind of spill out. But what I decided to do was do screen printing for home furnishing to kind of slow it down and make it more, I guess, artistic, that where I can use more of my artistic sense and exploring ways of pushing silk screen because we actually did the, had the screens made and did the screening. So as well as the designs. And then I, after a while, I decided to move back to New York and that's when I came up with doing carpet design. I found that maybe because New York is a hub for interior designers and architects that they would look at my designs. I was published in the New York Times. People came to me and they said, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? Like, can you tweak this? 
So it was more of a collaboration with these interior designers at these architectural firms or at their own firms. So then that became interesting for me to explore that. And I went off more or less in that direction, still making designs, but making my income by working one-on-one -on -one with interior designers and somewhat their vision. So you had already kind of had a built-in demand where designers were coming to you. So when you started ground plans, you didn't have to scavenge for people. You had already had kind of an inflow of demand. It was actually the press that was created by this first collection that I talked about. And I did one of the first, it's, they're called ICFF shows, International Contemporary Furniture Fair at the Javits Center. And the New York Times put one of my rugs on the front page of the home section, which was nice, of course. And so from that and, and magazines that, you know, hard copy magazines at the time publishing the work, it helped to spur that interchange. So tell us about the name, Ground Plans. There was another name I liked. I think it was maybe Ground. I can't remember right off the top of my head. I think it was Groundworks. Groundworks, thank you. But someone was using it for a textile company, so I couldn't use that. And I wanted to relate it to the, the fact that it was images coming up from the floor or the ground. And so that's how I came up with Ground Plans. How long has Eileen been a part of this journey? Well, technically four years, but ever since she's been a child, She's been around it. We were just going through photos yesterday, and there's a photo of me at like two years old rolling around on her rugs in her office. And so what has that been like for you two getting to operate a family-owned business? Well, I never did that before. My father had a business, but then it didn't work out for me to kind of take it over, and he eventually went bankrupt. But I like this, the, the sense of longevity of a business in that way. And so when Eileen said she wanted to jump in and try it, I thought that was great. And so it's had its challenges because we are mother-daughter. We have a certain relationship, as Eileen can tell you. But then there's another relationship overlapping now with the business. It sounds like it came from Eileen's interest versus you pressuring her to join. Is that right? So Eileen willingly signed up. Well, I think growing up, you know, Jody had always talked about this idea of us joining forces, you know, not joining forces necessarily, but, but presented it as an opportunity where, you know, it was like she had built something from scratch and there was always an opportunity to come in and try and join or do something else with it. So, I had that sense. And like she said, growing up, I mean, later than in high school and in college, we were always working together. I was assisting with meetings or with emails or with putting copy together. I mean, whatever it was, website, like it was a constant thing of working together. And so I also had this firsthand view of what it really took to run your own business and what that really meant. And also as a a single mother and as someone living in this metropolitan city with a really active social life. 
And so I saw how much work it was and the hours she would spend late at night, early in the morning, just trying to get everything done. And it just felt so daunting to me and so exhausting. And so I always had this idea that I wanted to sort of run in the other direction and like work for someone else, have someone else set the plan and I can just show up and do my work. So I really resisted for a long time and tried so many other things in completely different worlds. And then I got to a point where I saw that no matter what you're working on or who you're working for, if you have, you know, a strong work ethic, you're always going to be putting in a hundred percent, no matter what, and you're always going to want it to be successful. And you're going to want to believe in the mission of what you're doing. So why not have that mission be something that's much more personal and have the work be with people that, you know, you have such a close connection to. Just to put aside, you don't have to put this in, but when she was little, she'd see me work at the computer like day and night, either designing or, you know, reaching out to um, manufacturers that were on the other side of the world. And she'd say, when I grow up, I want to work for a big company. And then another time she'd say, I want to work for the CIA. <laughs> you know, she had it all planned in her mind. Which I basically did. <laughs> And then I did that basically and tried it and it was, it wasn't any easier. <laughs> so do you have any advice, any bits of advice for either father, son, mother, daughter, or just family businesses in general? Like how do you guys navigate that relationship of having to toggle back and forth between family life and then also, okay, like let's put the work hats on. I think you just develop sort of like a quicker scale of moving through things. So if you don't have a a business or like tasks that you have to get to as a family, it's easier to just kind of let things build or let things go and you and drop them and decide to revisit them, you know, maybe days later, or weeks later and you can kind of just like let issues fester, but I think we always have something that we're obviously working on or working towards. And so in a way that sort of becomes the prompt to like, just keep going, you know, and just keep moving forward and recognize also at the end of the day that like our relationship is obviously the most important thing work. There have been times, I think, at least for myself, for certainly where I've seen work kind of get in the way or feel like I was prioritizing that in the wrong way. And so it just becomes this reminder that like at the end of the day, your relationship is the most important thing, but also having these common goals that you're working towards is also what keeps you just moving on the path. How about for you, Jody? Do you have any bits of advice to add? I think working in a business is so much about personality. And that's also why I stayed away from working more in or with a corporate structure where there are many people like the office dynamics and the, the back and forth of what people think of each other. To me, I couldn't survive in that kind of environment. It's not that important to me. The work is really important. And I think people wouldn't see that as favorably. So that's why maybe that's why I kept it small and it was more about my one-on-one with the clients and or the manufacturers 
with Eileen coming in, I see it does create a very different dynamic. But what I liked about her coming into it was that is that she's a younger generation. So she can see things differently, see the needs of what what her generation is interested in and how they would do maybe social media or, you know, just expose the designs, the structure of making a rug to different people that I might not even consider. And so to me, that dynamic is most interesting to see what someone who, because my generation, they might not even be buying rugs anymore. It's the, your generation that's buying the rugs and, you know, are interested in interior design in their home or their office or whatever. So it naturally should go on to the next generation. And I think that maybe is the most important thing when like a father-son or a mother-daughter or mother-son, that dynamic is working together to know that the younger one is going to push it out in a different direction and be happy with it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've read a few books that talk about how now with boomers retiring and 19% of them own small businesses, there's this huge like legacy gap of people wanting to pass on their businesses. But a lot of times people in our generation aren't as eager to pick up our parents' businesses. So I think this is an amazing case of a really cool, interesting, unique business being worked on together. And then ultimately, it sounds like the baton will be passed off. Well, and it's interesting you say bring up that stat too, because I think I've seen that, obviously, I felt that way at one time, and I've seen that in people our age, and I've seen it with people my mother's age who sort of now are left unsure where it, where it will go. And so maybe back to your advice question as well, like, I would encourage people our age, if they are in that situation, to see the opportunities in it, like, not to maybe take what the business is right now at face value, but to see that, like, whatever they're interested in, if they, whatever they think might not necessarily be directly related to the business as it stands now, I would encourage them to look for ways to bridge that gap and see that like they can make it whatever they want, you know? Yeah, I think it's a a huge opportunity anytime you can get involved in any business pretty much. But so walk us through the process of like, if I'm a client working with ground plans, what is that full process? process look like from start to finish? So I think it depends. We work mostly with the trade. So interior designers and architects do interiors, but we have a few individual clients so or personal clients. But starting with the trade, We try to just meet our clients wherever they are. So some will come to us with a very clear image of exactly what they want. They sort of have it planned out and they just need advice on particulars like materials and textures. And then others will come to us with a completely blank slate and they'll have the inspiration from the rest of the room or the rest of the building. And then we come in and really start from scratch and we'll present them usually with 
a baseline of our work. So Jody has like hundreds and hundreds of designs that we never even released or turned into things. We of course have past projects. And so we'll come to them with those as these inspiration points. And then it just kind of goes from there. And so we're like a cross between the designers and the consultants and the project managers in that sense. And then for private clients, usually it's people who do have sort of a clear aesthetic or or an understanding of art and the craft. So they kind of have a starting point. But we've had people come to us with just like a table they love, you know, or some color scheme. And from there, it's just really a back and forth collaborative process of creating the whole, all of the elements that go into the rug. So I found it easier to work with architects and designers and interface with them. They're the ones working with the end client. Some of my end clients, when I've taken on an end client here or there, if they have a great vision, one was a um, CEO of a division of Time Warner, DC Comics, and she knew exactly what she wanted, but was interested in the input. So that was a great exchange. But then I've worked with other people who are not working with a designer or an architect. And sometimes they're surprised when they see the sample that we first make for them. We don't just go into making a rug, but we make a sample. And then they'll be surprised by the colors or the texture and you keep redoing it. And, you know, that's for artists that have come to you know, us with their vision and, and they want it just so close. And so those are, I find more difficult sometimes. What is that like if someone is shocked or maybe not as pleased with a first iteration? Well, then you make the second or the third and then they go back and they say, oh, but I like this. And, and I would say, oh yeah, but I showed you that. And it was like, so it, does it ever get to a point where you say, okay, no more revisions? <laughs> this is your last shot? I, subtly, yes. I guess they know when they have to, you know, there was one or two, not too many, that, you know, one woman that really realized she had to back off and make a choice. <laughs> what about your design process? How do you go about finding inspiration or actually just creating the, is, do you have like a methodology or is it all kind of, free-flowing creative process or when I lived in San Francisco there was this textile school in Berkeley and it was a class called computer generated weaving in 1982 so Steve Jobs was looking for a platform for his computers and so he donated his Apple II computers to us to get it started get the ball rolling and then to um Maybe a year or so later, he also talked to a small group of us about his new Macintosh computer that was just coming out before he was fired from Apple. And so I looked at it, and because I do repeat pattern, it seemed very applicable for me to then take that and be able to repeat it without putting it on a board and having to repeat it manually. So I love the idea but I think he didn't have a color screen by then. So I waited when the color screen came out. Early 90s, I jumped in. And so I started doing all my designs on the computer. Friends had taught me, you know, a little this or that. And 
in what was then freehand, not even illust before Illustrator and Photoshop. And so I just took off with it. And yes, then, then the inspiration would come from various places where I would see designs that I felt or pieces of work that I felt could be applicable for a rug. You know, some people went and ran with it and, you know, got notoriety for it because I would give my designs, like design books to architectural firms and say, here, if you want any, because they wanted to keep it in their library or broad loom businesses that then ran with it. But, you know, that be that as it may, the inspiration just came from different sources. I don't know if you can think of any off the top of your head, Eileen. I know we were talking about that the other day. Yeah, we were. And it's something that I like to ask, too, because you forget that, you know, there's a whole, like, story behind every single thing. But I think most often what I hear from you and how I find myself sort of reacting to the world now, too, is a lot comes from nature and really just noticing small details on a walk or wherever you are. And that often turns into the seed for the next kind of project, whatever it is. So being an observer of the world around you. And really connecting with like with nature because that's already like perfect in itself, you know, and it's that's the most like root source of inspiration. So now all the designs are made in Photoshop or in Illustrator? Pretty much. Yeah, there's a lot less like freehand. I was just going to go back and say there was a garden in Minnesota when the children were young. We went to, and it was it was an English garden. And so I took my inspiration from that, like took the photograph of it from above and then kind of recreated it so it repeat. And so it could even be a manufactured garden in nature. And then just one more thing to add to that too. We also, I feel like, have this interest in, in like the micro macro. So like, hyper zooming into whether it's like a texture or a leaf or, you know, like anything that you can abstract to that point. So you, you kind of change the scale for people. I think that's a, like a big theme in a lot of the things that a lot of design that we like. So how has it been navigating the world of business as an artist? And did you have to quickly teach yourself business or how did that go? Did you have some business background? My father was in business for himself. So I think it did not seem that intimidating to me. And then going back to my father, when we were talking, I think he was afraid of a younger generation person coming in because his ego was very invested in it. So he couldn't like say you take over and that's a good idea. So that's why his business ultimately failed after he, you know, couldn't accept me or, you know, other people in the business. But I think the fact that he did run a business and work day and night as we were growing up, it didn't seem so overwhelming to me. And what was his business? Hardware and tools. It was a catalog in stores. So ask me about hardware and tools. <laughs> Pre-Home Depot. <laughs> Well, both like very tactile, like grounded in the physical world. What about your mother? Did she help with the business at all? Of course, he didn't want her to. <laughs> but she had a great sense of design and style. 
But what she put it into, you know, this was the 50s, 60s, 70s, was clothing, some interior design as well. So I think I grew up with her as an inspiration for that, which I didn't realize when I was, you know, maybe 15, 20, 30 years ago. But someone once asked me and I realized, yeah, that was a big piece of my upbringing, her design sense. Take us back to a moment when Ground Plans was facing adversity and how did you overcome it? There were these mohair rugs that I found through an Iranian dealer in New York. Actually, they were called Ushag. And I said, let's do them with no design on them because the mohair was so beautiful. And now it's become very common, but at the time it wasn't. So they were a bit shocked. And then they, I got so many orders for them. It was around before 08 or around, you know, before the economy fell, around that time. And so I was doing well. And then they started bringing them in with soiled and whatever, and I couldn't accept them. You know, that was huge for not having the income that I, and I had to give back deposits to these people, this architectural firm. But then someone else came to me, and it's always been word of mouth designers that go from one group to another. And so then this woman wound up working for Tory Birch. So then I started doing the Tory Birch stores. But then that was all about quantity. It wasn't so much about design, but it was quantity. But that's okay because it paid the bills. And so how did you overcome that challenge of the quality of the rugs not being on point? Someone from that design, another design firm said, why don't you find your own yarn? I scoured mohair. It used to be made in Texas. These sheep used to be in Texas. No more. So I found a supplier that actually could make the yarn in Africa and then have it shipped to my warehouse, my factories or manufacturers that were in India and and Nepal. And so then they would create the rugs from there. It took a couple of years at least. But that I think also has been like, now become a foundational part of our business is the fact that we pretty much exclusively work directly with our manufacturers, first of all. And for projects like this, we work directly with the the yarn supplier. So almost like forcing us to have full control of our supply chain ultimately gives us a lot more control and, and better pricing for us, for our clients. So I think now it's it led to a great precedent. And how do you go about finding manufacturers? I know this is a big, difficult pain point for a lot of entrepreneurs. So what's your guys' method? Or is it now pretty much you have the ones that you know and trust? Yeah, I would say so. Just getting back to another adverse situation, I was working with the hand tufters in the South, in Georgia. That used to be a big place for hand tufting carpets. It was bought out by Warren Buffett. It was Chaw Industries. So he closed down whatever he felt wasn't so productive. So he probably, you know, it was going to be made in China. That was fine with him. So then I, again, worked with a different dealer in New York. But then he started taking my clients. He started taking my designs, not paying me. So then I decided after that just... 
cut it off and like Eileen said, work directly with manufacturers wherever they are. Some approached me, some I knew who were manufacturing with those manufacturers here, lent me recommendations. And so it kind of snowballs from that. Did you ever have to get into like an IP lawsuit? I've looked into it most recently. Yes, with big name manufacturers. Take signing, I, all my designs are copyrighted, signing a non-appropriation agreement and yet appropriating it. But there's a three-year window. It, there's no longer look back than that. Plus, because it's not their design, other big name designers have taken that design and they can't stop them because it's not their design to begin with. And then doing an IP lawsuit can cost several hundreds of thousands of dollars to litigate. Might make some, but they said there's this old Chinese proverb, one lawsuit lost money. I will say IP law for, for artists is really, really tough. I mean, just in general, what I've seen, and then you hear from other people that they just sort of accept it. And the mindset that people, so many people adopt is just like, well, it's out there and I've spread my design throughout. And even if I'm not given credit, I can always create more, but it's really tough. Legally, the law is really not on the side of the artist. I mean, isn't there even the saying, the good artist copy, great artist steal? I could be wrong. It, is that might be a Picasso quote. I could be totally wrong. <laughs> But I think he said something like, great artists steal, or every artist steals. He had a, a photographic memory. So he could remember something and then incorporate it. He was incredible in that way. You know, just being able to remember and then spit it out in an amazing way. Who are some of the other artists that you look up to or have throughout your life? There is one that I keep going back to. He has a design in the building adjoining Grand Central Station. And his name is Richard Lipold. And he does the most incredible sculptures. He was, you know, probably mid-century, 60s, 70s. And he's no longer alive now. I'm just looking from 1915 to 20, 2002, he lived. Then there was one who was a friend of mine, Lenore Tawney, who did um, weavings, and she lived to be 100, died in 2007, and we were very good, close friends. She was a great weaver and innovator of even working off the loom back in you know mid-century and after. So geometric artwork captures you most? Yeah, geometric, but also if it has a kind of... Hers wasn't just geometric because she would move the yarn through... And I think this Richard Leopold, too, I mean, if you want to look him up, I can send you a link. It's like beyond geometric. It really is. How about you, Eileen? Well, my mom always had like Rothko books around and Rothko became sort of like a little obsession of mine. And, you know, he was at museums around the world. It was so fun to see in different settings because I think, you know, a lot of people see his work as just like really simple if they're not like super engaged with it but I find just this idea that I like the subtlety of his work and how colors 
and their combinations can create, you know, a whole host of complex emotions that we might not even have words for. And that's, you know, the purpose of art in itself. But then on the other side, there are artists like Thorin Stettheimer, who was a, a Jewish artist in the early 20th century. And her work while she was alive, you know, was just seen as sort of like a hobby. Now she's gaining a lot more recognition, of course, in death and in the new century. But she has these extremely like flamboyant and playful scenes, you know, in a park and and in museums and in the theater. And so I love work like that. That's just kind of playful and surreal in a sense. I like the surreal mixed with real. And there will be like real characters from history and real things that occurred, of course, but it's like a just a little fantasy element to it. I, I'm a little bit opposite. My mom and I overlap in some of our aesthetic. And then there are the sides that are like polar, polar, polar opposites. For me, in like the romantic art that I love, you know, like the 19th century French paintings in the Met and and this like very over the top, like romanticism. And that is in conflict? Yes. <laughs> One person that I did love many years back and still do is Whistler, not for Whistler's mother, but he created this room in DC that's incredible. And he did a kind of abstract with color and light, beautiful work. Yeah, I think we overlap in like the subtle art that plays with light and color and dimension. And then, yeah, maybe Jody sort of gravitates, like you said, towards the more like metric and jacuzzi, if you think of, you know, influences like that. And I'm like in fantasy land. (laughs) So being based in New York, I'm assuming is very helpful to be tied into the art world like that. Tell us more about living in New York as an artist. Well, I always took it for granted. I didn't really think about it because I'm from here. So it was just the way I grew up. And yes, other people would come here because of that stimulation. And of course, before the internet, they must have felt very trapped in their, you know, small community or outlying area, so to speak. But I never felt that. I saw Soho before it was became Soho even. When we used to buy scrap leather for our jeans to sew on because there are scrap leather, you know, stores. <laughs> it was that basic. But yeah, I think you do definitely take it for granted when you when you live here and especially grow up here, like Jody and I did, because also you're just so surrounded by creativity all the time and And you take for granted the fact that like the people you're growing up with just become actors and actresses and painters and designers. And there's so much success and there's so much, you're so socialized with people who who've reached that success also. So it just sort of seems like everyone's constantly working on their own thing here and landing it. Does that ever come as a negative point though? Like I find sometimes if there's too much noise around, it can be hard to dive into the creative process. Yeah. I think that's what I found. Part of the reason I moved to LA is because New York started to just feel a little bit suffocating. And I love coming back here now because I have some distance and can really appreciate it. But it did feel like 
you know, going to so many events every night and constantly socializing with people. And it's fascinating. It's interesting. It's stimulating. But if you're just sponging up all of that, then yeah, it becomes harder to hear your own self and just figure out even what you're, what you're trying to say, if anything. So we talked a little bit about the adversity that Ground Plans has been through at like some little moments. How about some of your highlights or favorite moments or proudest moments? Well, I think one of my first clients, but I didn't tell her at the time, was this CEO of, of Time Warner. I just said, you know, I didn't make a big deal about it, but she was brilliant in so many ways and had me do multiple roads for her in different locations. And we then developed a friendship. My marriage wasn't going so well. We just met socially and she was going to Africa to stay in the house of Peter Gabriel. And did I want to come with her on this moment's notice? (laughs) So I did, you know, for about a week. And we've remained friends ever since. So there were those highlights, you know, definitely another designer whose husband had been the president of Knoll in the United States here. And she always picked up on my pattern designs and ran with them and put them in houses. We worked in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. I did many rugs for that house in um, Rye, New York, which was owned by a man named Hoffman. And he was the first importer of Mercedes into the United States. And the Tishes were then owning the house at the time. And I think there's someone else now who, who owns that house. I know her. Who's a famous fashion designer. So there are those highlights. <laughs> How about for Eileen? Any highlights that stand out for you? I think for me, my favorite moments are always when we're doing the installation. Because... There's something about our, the life cycle of our projects is very long. You know, oftentimes we'll start one, two, even three years in advance. And so while you're not working on every project every single day, it's a long process and it goes slowly. So when you're finally at that day, especially for, I think, the bigger things we've done, like with major universities or with restaurants or um, even some houses, when you finally see it out and you're getting up early, you know, to go meet the installers on that day. And there's a whole like excitement and anticipation and the hustle of coordinating everyone and and getting all the moving pieces together for this like grand reveal. I just find to be such an exciting moment and seeing the designers so happy and their clients so happy. It's like you realize that they finally see the value of what's been created and, and it feels, it just feels really good. Yeah, it sounds like that would be very satisfying. There was a highlight just the other day where we went to lunch with an architect that who I worked with maybe over 20 years ago for many, many years. He has a firm that's a very prominent firm. He's of Asian descent and telling us about his life story of living in different places and countries, which I knew a little bit about and other interests he had but how we find that the historical precedent of things are so important and also moving forward more in our business to help others to be more proactive 
in working with people that are less, that have less than us. So that was a real treat. And he, this person, even he said he wasn't so attracted to pattern, but he was gravitate towards like, I put fiber optics in my rug. So I did constellation on a rug or, you know, Swarovski crystal in sewn in. And I mean, helped me with that rug when she was little. So, and mohair, the mohair quality I was telling you about. So there, he was always attracted to that and would pick up on that and just move with it. That was very exciting. Not only having him do that, but getting to know him so well personally. That's so true. That's, yeah, the last thing I'll add to that, I think a huge highlight are just the clients that we get to interact with. Like these are world-renowned architects and designers and people that are pushing the envelopes in in how like the everyday person is designing their home. You know, it trickles down to that. And that's something in the in the last couple of years that I've come to really like recognize and appreciate how incredible it is to be able to just like have lunch with these people or a design meeting. We also have a blog and a podcast. So I think that's brought people to us who can, in a more intimate way, who can relate to mine is more about interior design, lighting, color, the importance of all those aspects of what makes for a great interior. And I was doing gut interior renovations for myself and with an architect for well-known people for a little while. So, you know, it just comes naturally. What are some of the topics you cover in your blog and on the podcast? We just have a blog. We don't have a podcast. But you don't have a podcast yet. We don't have a podcast yet. (laughs) We do record little videos, but just to kind of throw around social media. But yeah, the blog's been quite a journey. Well, Jody actually wrote a book about 10 years ago over the course of a couple of years. And so some friends of mine were sort of working in design tech. We looked into getting the book published, but instead wound up building a site that sort of became this like digital story book. So half of the blog is that. And it's it was sort of like a new way that we all collaboratively decided to make a digital book, but make it really like interactive almost as you flow through it. And so that, as Jody referenced, is really about the foundational aspects of design. And the whole theory behind it is that everyone should be able to be their own designer. And I think this is our like foundational ethos also behind our business is that everyone has access to creativity within them and access to their own personal tastes and preferences. And through just some foundational knowledge about lighting and scale and space planning can be their own designer. So that's that half of it. And then there was also flooring on the wall, calling it off the wall. Yes, yeah, so we cover every aspect of design. And then we have um, the blog, a more kind of traditional blog where we used to post more. Now it's a little bit less frequently, but it's just about travel and I think in recent years also connected more to our musings on the world as Jody kind of alluded to, you know, thinking a lot more about just as people, how we feel in our society, socially and politically. And then of course that connects to our work. So do you have any bit of advice for entrepreneurs or people who are wanting to start a business around their passion and their craft? 
I think Eileen should answer that because I feel in this world, I don't even know how I would have gotten started or if I would have gotten started in the same way. I'm not sure. I think trade shows are a good place to start. They were very good for me. And then they're discussed, you know, online or, you know, wherever you need to take it. But that, I think, Eileen, you would know more about for a younger person starting out, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, kind of like I was saying before, but when you're running your own business, you know, no one's making you show up every day. You're every day deciding that you want to put something out into the world. And I think we're at a time where people are sort of connecting their work to their life a little bit more. And it has to be relevant to the things you care about just as a person in order to really keep that momentum going and that care. I mean, as like tactically trade shows are great and obviously... It also sounds like, I was going to say, the network sounds like a huge play or like importance in just fostering those relationships. It sounds like, you know, some of your highlights were the people you got to connect with through the work and those relationships that came out of it. But then also like, it sounds like a lot of work has come to you through word of mouth and referral. So building relationships and fostering relationships in your community and beyond, I think sounds like a good point based on what you guys have already said. And maybe for me, something that I learned is that maybe when I was younger, I was more like set in, it should be this way or that way to be more flexible with people. It's, it's that interrelationship to keep at the forefront that you want to make that uplifting and happy for both of you. Whereas like sometimes, you know, I was young and I'd be put off by something or whatever, but now I, I look at it differently and I look back at it as if maybe that could have been worked on better if I had had the wherewithal of, of knowing that. Yeah. I was going to say too, with the networking aspect, like, yes, of, of course, being flexible and not being, you know, rigid in your thinking, but we talk so much about networking, but I think there's a distinction between people, you know, that are in your industry and make sense to connect with. And then there's just people that you really like. And I would always just recommend like gravitate towards the people you like, because the person that you think you should be connecting with or or that you should align with, if you don't have a genuine connection, it's really hard to maintain that and push it forward. And it's hard to make it feel good for you and for both people. So I think it's really about finding people that you genuinely are inspired by as well. And also just reaching out. Like even when I first moved to LA, there was, you know, some designers that I felt more aligned to in the ways that they thought about sustainability. And maybe they weren't like the biggest designers in LA, but, but there was something that I felt a kindred spirit towards and just like reached out blindly and they were so honored that someone I connected with that part of them that they also valued maybe more than just their professional selves. And like, you never know how it can be unexpected ways where you meet the person you should quote unquote meet, you know, maybe through a web of other connections that you were just genuinely following curiosity. Are you working out of LA? 
I'm in Denver right now. Because I was thinking back to, you know, artists that I've loved. And one was there were a group of L.A. artists, lighting artists, Dan Flavlin, James Terrell. I don't know if you know of that group, but they did amazing light work and still still do. Well, we always bring us towards a close with if you had to describe your entrepreneurial journey in one word, what would it be? Like a little bit like a seesaw or, you know, just a visual. I really like the spiral because I feel like I'm always sort of like coming back to a point, but I'm not obviously where I was, but I have life and work feels so cyclical. And it's like things that I, I'm always like revisiting a past version of self, but from a different vantage point or realizing things from a different vantage point. but feel like I'm sort of back in that same place sometimes. And Jody, when you said seesaw, did you mean that in like an up and down way? Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, it has its ups and downs. Yeah. Your questions about it kind of recalled it in a way that, yeah, I remember that, but I remember that, you know. We get the ups and downs a lot or, you know, like the roller coaster type answers a lot. But I'm assuming that it's the ups outweigh the downs for you. Is that right? Because you've kept going. Right. Well, any last bit of advice or anything you would like people to know about you, your work? Yeah. I mean, I think we're sort of in a transition period between our traditional business. And then as Jody sort of alluded to bringing, bring it into the future and looking at new ways we can really disrupt. And I think there are projects we've wanted to do, including bringing manufacturing to the United States to some extent, like she said, working with people who most need the work and might have the hardest time finding work. And so there are bigger ambitions that we've kind of toyed with over the years since I first started and even before that it either wasn't the right timing or the approach was just a little bit too fast and aggressive, but we're coming back to those ideas and I'm excited to bring those forward. And I know Jody is too, because it's just a shift in our values and a shift in the way that we want to run our business, basically. So we're excited about figuring out how to kind of turn the ship a little bit. So where can people find you if they want to get more information? Well, we just put out our new e-commerce website, which we've never had before because we, like I said, work pretty much exclusively with the trade and exclusively custom. So that is at groundplans.store, www.groundplans.store. And then www.groundplans.com is our website. That's where you can really see kind of like a full portfolio of the past 30 years and beyond. And there you will also find a link to the blog site that we talked about. And then the other site is Groundswell by Joe, which is the uh, blog site. And then you mentioned you were on social media. Is it just at Ground Plants? Yes. And you can find some videos we like to post about just fun facts about different materials or color theory or whatever we're kind of talking about in meetings with our clients. Um, We like to post a little tidbits. Well, thank you both so much for your time. This has been very interesting. I just want to say I've done interviews before, been interviewed, and you are excellent at it. You really are. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, thank you guys so much. I'm going to stop the recording, but we'll still be on. All right. 
So thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Sliced Podcast. If you enjoyed listening, we would love for you to share this little slice of insight with your friends. See you next week.